Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Our guest today is Emily Pilliton, the founder and executive director of Girls Garage, a nonprofit which has taught thousands of young girls how to use power tools, weld, and build projects for their communities. Emily holds a Bachelor of Arts in Architecture from the University of California, Berkeley, and a Master of Fine Arts in Architecture, Interior Architecture, and Designed Objects from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She is currently a lecturer in the College of Environmental Design at the University of California, Berkeley, and is the author of three books. One, Design Revolution, 100 Products That Empower People. Number two, Tell Them I Built This, Transforming Schools, Communities, and Lives with Design-Based Education. And most recently, Girls Garage, How to Use Any Tool, Tackle Any Project, and Build the World You Want to See. Her work is documented in the full-length film, If You Build It, and has been featured on the TED stage, the New York Times, and the Colbert Report, and presented to the Obama administration's Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House. And I've seen you on Oprah. I've seen you in many other places as well, Emily. Emily Pilliton, welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Emily, from the moment we started the Hazard Girls podcast, you know, all about interviewing women in non-traditional industries and talking to different women about their careers, we've been getting emails and messages telling us, do you know Emily Pilliton of Girls Garage? You have to interview Emily Pilliton. So it's amazing that you're here. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thanks. This is such a great podcast and I'm happy to be part of the conversation. Well, we are honored to have you. With everything you're doing, you know, you do seem a lot like a superhero. I don't want to embarrass you, but I would like to dig a little deeper into your origin story. I read that you had a life-defining moment at the age of 16. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Of course, you know, so many life-defining moments, I I think that we only realize them as such much later. (laughs) And so in the moment, I'll tell you about it in a second. But in the moment, I don't know that I realized how much it would impact the rest of my life and my trajectory as a human. But of course, now I look back and I'm like, oh, that was that was the thing. And so when I was a young girl, um, I grew up here in Northern California, and I grew up in a community that was almost entirely and predominantly white. I was one of the only non-white students in my schools for pretty much the, my whole K through 12 career. And when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to travel with a group of teenagers from all around the country um, on a service trip to Belize. And it was the whole summer and I was there for almost two months. And over those two months, we designed and built an entire public town park. And we lived in a small town. I lived with a family. We learned all kinds of of hands-on skills. I learned how to use a machete uh, to clear a field of weeds. I learned how to hand mix concrete, how to frame a roof, construction skills that not many 16-year-old girls have. 
of course, now that's the work that I'm doing is that exact same thing and paying that forward. But in the moment, I just remember feeling like this was a project and an activity and a dynamic with other teenagers my age and community leaders and local experts, local Masons, that made me feel like I had power, that I could contribute something to the world and that my identity as always feeling different, that that wasn't so much a deficit, that maybe that was just who I am and maybe even my superpower. I felt like that project really helped me connect who I am to what was possible in the world. So of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I do look back on that moment as the first time I realized that the act of building was a way of exercising power. And as a young woman of color, that was a thing I hadn't experienced at that time. That's so interesting. So at just 16 years old, you got to take a trip. Was that a school trip? No, it was part of an organization that was nationwide. And so it was teenagers I had never met before. None of us knew each other. And we just were there together. And of course, at the end, we're you know BFF. But that was part of it too, that we, there were so many different types of young people. And yet on this construction site, we were all equal and we were all contributing to something. And was that what made you interested in architecture? Is that how you first became interested in thinking that that's what you would study in college? That's a great question. I know that it solidified it for me. And I think even before then, my grandfathers were both engineers and my grandmothers were both librarians, just in total coincidence. My I'm half Chinese and half French. And on both sides, I had a librarian and an engineer. So I always joke that architecture is somewhere in the intersection. If there's a Venn diagram between those two things, that's that's how I see architecture. And so I don't know, maybe it's in my genes. But I also, you know, I even before I got to build on a construction site, I do remember as a kid always being dirty, taking stuff apart, putting things together, building stuff in in my bedroom, drawing floor plans of my bedroom. I went to a lot of open houses with my dad. And just for fun, we would go and look at houses. And I think I've always had sort of a, a love of space and making space and considering how space influences our experience in the world. Um, so I think it was it was meant to be. I don't know when I made that decision for the first time, but certainly being in Belize was the thing that made me really connect to architecture as a practice. So you and your dad would just go look at open houses for the heck of it? Yeah, this was part of our weekend routine. I mean, in addition to, you know, going to Costco and eating soft pretzels. Yeah, we would just sort of look up the listings and go around and look at houses. We weren't in the market. It was just purely, you know, to a see what was out there. And I just remember developing a vocabulary. And even though, you know, at a young age, I didn't know all of the technical terms for all the architectural features of a home, I knew what it felt like to be in different spaces. And maybe that's that sense of feeling that space can give you is something I did experience at a young age. And, and also on the flip side, knowing when you're entering into a space that makes you feel like you don't belong. And so I think growing up, I was just acutely aware of spaces that, that made me feel welcome and spaces where I felt seen and then spaces where I didn't. I think that's so interesting that your dad took you to see open houses. Is, was it because he thought it was something you were interested in or was it that he, it's what he wanted to do? So he took you along. My dad is such a curious soul as, as a human. I think that there's a part of him that maybe at some point wanted to be an architect. And so perhaps this was 
living vicariously through through me and through that experience. But it was never forced upon me as like, you will be an architect. It was really just a fun thing we did together and um, getting out of the house and seeing seeing other people's houses. It was, I'm not actually sure the, the origin of it, but I do remember it as just as a consistent thing I did with my dad. And it was really a formative part of how I came to think about space. That's so wonderful. And I'm sure it brought you closer to spending time with him. Yeah. You know, oftentimes we would come home and I would go into my own bedroom and draw a new floor plan and then move furniture around. I think I redid my bedroom probably a hundred times as a kid. And so thinking about, you know, seeing and experiencing space and then creating my own space that felt safe and, and like it was mine. And when you got to college and you started studying this, did the experience meet your expectations? What, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, in some ways. I mean, I think studying architecture is such a, a fickle path. It really, I think many people ent- enter into architecture with the same kind of optimistic, um, idealistic sensibility that I had. And some of it is very much that. I mean, I think at UC Berkeley, I developed... Um, a way of seeing things, a way of making sense of things visually that certainly was an important foundation for the rest of my life. At the same time, I definitely missed the hands-on, like hands in mud, covered in sawdust. Um, I missed the sort of practical hands-on nature that I had experienced in, in Belize and, and in my childhood, just, you know, building stuff myself. And, that was a little bit disappointing to me, but I think also it's not the worst thing to step back and understand, you know, the philosophical foundations, the historical precedents for the field that you're interested in. And one of the reasons I went to the School of the Art Institute in Chicago for graduate school was because it was a place where I could build stuff. I could go into the shop and be there for weeks on end and just build And so I think together being at UC Berkeley and the School of the Art Institute was really an ideal education. I was able to to learn a lot about the history and philosophy, and then I was able to put that into practice. And how did you put it into practice? Did you go to work for a firm afterwards? Well, um, in graduate school, I one of the beautiful things about the School of the Art Institute is they have a wonderful work-study program. So while I was in grad school, I was actually also working for the museum, for the Art Institute of Chicago Museum, in their department of, I can't remember the exact department name, but it was the department that was working to open Millennium Park at the time. Oh, yeah, cool. Park, yeah, it was this whole, it was a, obviously a grand city plan, but it had a direct connection to the museum in the form of a footbridge that connected to the new Renzo Piano edition. And so I was there as that project was coming to life. And that was pretty magical to be part of a project of such a huge civic scale that was meant for the public. And I think that was another way of of coming to understand the power of architecture, that it is meant for everyone. And at the same time, I was downstairs in the basement learning how to weld and braze and, you know, pouring molten metal and learning all kinds of new media that I had not used before. And I think the combination of those things really set me up for a career where, I would go on to demand that my work was meaningful and that I could have a physical hand in it. Well, you started your first nonprofit project, H-Design. Was that 
sometime during the time you were studying or did that take place years later? What was your path to starting that nonprofit? Right. So I graduated from the Art Institute in 2005. And to answer your previous question, yes, I did get, I get a, got a job at, at a firm, at a design firm. And so much of that was motivated by student loan debt. I had, I think, close to $80,000 in student loan debt and the pressure to be an adult, to have a 401k, to have a good job, all of these things that we are told we need to have. And I worked at a couple different firms, actually, for the next three years couple firms, a couple retail companies doing retail architecture. And to make a long story very short, I realized two things. I do not do well with authority. <laughs> I don't love having a boss. I don't love doing work that feels creative that someone else puts their name on. And I really, really missed being on a job site. I missed being in the thick of the actual construction. And so in 2008, I left the, the field, in quotes, and I started a nonprofit under the name Project H Design, which actually is now Girls Garage. We've just evolved and changed the name, but it's the same entity. And I founded that nonprofit. I was 26 years old. I had $1,000 in my bank account. I had moved back in with my parents. This is like the worst possible recipe for starting. Oh, my gosh. But... It just kind of felt like, you know, I didn't really have a choice. I felt like if I was going to do the work that was both meaningful and hands-on, that I was going to have to create that for myself. Because in 2008, when I founded this, there wasn't really a path for for designers, uh, for builders. This, this was not a built-in part of an architecture practice. And so I founded the nonprofit purely just to figure it out. It was a way of putting a stake in the ground and saying, this is the kind of work I want to do. I know I want it to be in service of others, and I'm going to figure out how to make that happen for myself and for other designers that feel the same way. So Project H Design, did that start out as a program to teach young people originally, or is that something that it, it developed into when it became Girls Garage? It did, yeah. And so at the at the beginning of Project H Design, I mean, I had... My mission statement was, you know, cat scratched on a napkin. It was really, frankly, I look back and I, it seemed like I didn't know what I was doing. But what I did know is what I didn't want to be. And I think I've always been a person that will work 10 times harder than anyone else and will always ask for help and always be grateful for that help. And so, yeah, from the very beginning, I, I, I started working with young people actually in the context of um, an in-school experience. And so our first program was a shop class. And former partner and I wrote a curriculum, embedded this shop class program in a school district in rural North Carolina. And the purpose was to reinvent shop class around community purpose. So instead of making a lamp or a cutting board to take home to your mom, we built a 2,000 square foot farmer's market in a small town in a food desert. And I think through that experience, through teaching youth within their school day and really understanding how design and building isn't just about making communities better, it's also about how you learn and growing up and understanding your power in the world. That is what grew into Girls Garage. And that those relationships with those young people and seeing how design and building really 
lit them up and made them leaders in their communities. And through that, I began working more with just female students and and Girls Garage was the, the result of that. Well, why don't you tell us what today, what is Girls Garage all about? So Girls Garage um, is the renamed version of Project H Design. And in 2013, I ran a camp, a summer camp as an experiment just to work with a group of young girls and to do exactly the work we had been doing previously, design and build carpentry, welding, architecture with a group of young women. And I wanted to understand the difference between teaching in a co-ed space and teaching with a group of young women and being able to remove all of that social calculus that young women and girls have to do. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. It's There is, you know, let's call it 10 to 80% of your energy that often has to go to dismantling expectations, to proving you belong in the room, to modulating your own language, shutting down mansplaining, on and on. And so I ran this camp in 2013. It sold out immediately. It was 36 girls, I'm sorry, 48 girls who are all 9 to 13 years old. And we did some small-scale carpentry and welding projects, and it was magical. It was like nothing I'd ever experienced. Their commitment to the craft, their they were so earnest about the work. There was nothing like cute or silly about it. They were there to work. And I was so inspired by, by this energy that when you bring girls and women together and you remove all of the BS, the work is phenomenal. And I think that being together in an all-girls space just was a, an affirmation that we know what we're doing. We're going to make beautiful work and we're going to do it together. And so since then, that was in 2013, and we've grown every single year. And so now we are a year-round after-school and summer program for girls and gender-expansive youth, ages 9 to 18. And girls come to us when they're 9. They stay until they're 18. Some of them graduate and go to college and come back as interns. And we're also a physical space. This goes back to my love of architecture from childhood, that we have a physical workshop with a 3,600-square-foot wood shop, metal shop, print shop. And it's important that this space belongs to girls. It says Girls Garage on the door. So I think that girls come here to experience that same sense of power and identity and support that I felt when I was a teenager and I guess the last thing I'll say is it's also really important to me that the work we're doing exists outside of our walls, that sometimes we make cutting boards and lamps and take them home, but the home run is applying all of our skills to needs that we see in our community. So right now, for example, we're building distance learning desks um, for a homeless shelter down the street where there are families and youth living there. And so we're building distance learning desks for them. We've built chicken coops. We've built furniture for the women's shelter. We've built sandboxes for the local preschools. And just like the town park when I was a teenager, I think seeing your own skills live in the world and other people using them and being able to point to something and saying, I built that is a really transformative experience at, at that age. I can see how that would promote so much confidence. And you've talked about how 
what you're doing is promoting community and, and service to others as well. How does learning to work with tools and, and do these projects together build their leadership skills? That's a great question. I think it's a couple things. I mean, one is, so our slogan is fear less, build more. And at first, so this, this slogan came about through our work with a branding firm. And when I first read the slogan, I was like, that's horrible. And sound like all girls are afraid. And then I was like, well, everyone's afraid. And maybe we need to just destigmatize the idea of fear. Like everyone is afraid of something. I'm afraid of like a ton of stuff. And instead of trying to pretend like we're fearless, why don't we all just say, huh, that seems scary. And then do it anyway. I'm and, so and- happy to hear you saying this. When I, yeah, when I saw your slogan, I loved it. It was fearless because it's not about being fearless. It's about bravery and fighting through it. That's right. Yeah. And we talk about this, like bravery is, it is like a muscle. And the more that you do things that are scary, the more you believe you can do anything that's scary. And it's a muscle you can exercise that gets stronger. It's also a choice. You can choose to be brave. You're not just born brave. So I think that's one thing that translates directly into leadership is just providing a space and experiences for girls where they're able to exercise their bravery muscle and also see the result of making brave decisions. That if you decide to do something that's brave, here's this physical artifact that came of that. And here's this physical structure in your community that lives in the world because you chose to be brave. I think that's that's one thing. The second thing I would say is that because the work is so physical, wood, metal, these are all real materials. It comes with consequence. Like if we we just built a 500 square foot chicken pavilion and this building, it has to stand up. Like there's no, we talk about failure as this like, you know, oh, it's important to fail. And it's, it's, there are times when it's important to fail. And there are times when you cannot fail. That building cannot fall down. And so I think also doing things of consequence where you have to get something to stand up and it has to work for the people using it. And it has to be respectful and embedded and and meaningful to our community. That also reads leadership because you're accountable and you're building something that you have to put your name on and that has to last. And I think that just helps young people think a little bit differently about about their role in the world and what they're capable of. We've talked a lot about women's underrepresentation in STEM and talking about how there are problems of access and support and inclusion. How would our world be different if it was built by a truly diverse group? How would this improve things for the population in general? Yeah, so this is my dream. I, when I look at those statistics that you're referencing, I mean, the representation of women in STEM broadly, in engineering, in um, construction, in the trades is pretty abysmal. And the numbers are improving, I should say. But like, I, I was looking at one statistic where I think it went from like 2.7 to 3%. And they were like, this is a 10% increase or whatever. And it sounds impressive, but you're like, wait, it's still 3%. So when I look at those numbers, they're depressing just quantitatively. But I think what's scary to me is when you think about the implications that those numbers have 
for what I call who gets to build the world. Like who are the authors of the world? And who's making our cities, our public spaces, our data systems, our technology? It's mostly white men. And that just means that we have a world that is designed from, I'm sorry, a, ve- a fairly narrow perspective. And so for me, it's not just about like, oh, everything should be 50-50 men and women. It's also about we need to be able to think about our world in the most inclusive and diverse way so that it works for the most people and so that it's beautiful and representative. So my dream is that if there are more diverse people in the room at the design sketch table, more women, more people of color, people of different ages, backgrounds, physical abilities, that the world will be designed for everyone. There are so many things right now that you look at and you're like, oh, that was designed for white men because it was designed by white men. And there's a fabulous book called Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. And she talks about the implications of of data and and all kinds of things that were designed mostly by white men and and the dangerous implications of that. I mean, this is true in, in medicine, like where we get data from for understanding heart disease and on and on and on. And so I think it is, it's not just about numbers. It's about creating a world where everyone feels seen, where the physical world is designed for everyone. And also that everyone feels like they have a say in what their world looks like, that you can look around your neighborhood and say, huh, I wish that was better. And then understand that you can make it that way. Well, you have a quote that I love and I'm going to read it. It's investing in fearless builder girls is our greatest renewable resource and our boldest investment in the future. And that is powerful stuff. There are many industries suffering from worker shortages, especially as the workforce, which is older males, ages out. Is that what you're referring to in that quote? That is what I'm referring to. I I think that the demographic of the workforce is troubling. And we can look at that from a purely data quantitative perspective. But I also mean that I think there's a, a really magical, wonderful, unique way that women look at the world because of how we have to navigate the world. And that is a perspective that is lost from so many places in which our world is designed. So I would love... I'd love to see more women supported um, in, in leadership positions with clearer pathways into those leadership positions, more networks for women to support each other. We know, I mean, there, there's hard evidence that when there are more women in leadership positions and on boards, that those, those businesses and corporations perform better. So this is also just about doing better, that we can do better when there are more diverse people in the room. Well, why don't you tell us where our listeners can find out more about Girls Garage, where they can get your book, and how they can get in touch with you. Sure. Yeah, you can find out all about our programs, our backgrounds, some stories from our girls, some blog posts at girlsgarage.org, or on Instagram, we're at underscore girlsgarage. And you can also buy our book wherever books are sold or directly from us via our website. And the copies that we sell from our website are signed by me. Ooh, (laughs) definitely bonus. Emily Pilliton of Girls Garage, you're doing so much incredible work to promote girls and women in construction and STEM. And you've taught us so much about how 
it's not just benefiting the girls themselves. Really, it's for the greater good because these empowered and skilled young women then go into the labor force and improve their communities and bring a diverse perspective to the way things are made. And we know you're a very busy woman. We thank you so much for being with us today on the Hazard Girls podcast. Thank you so much for hosting these really important and inspiring conversations. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.